You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Services. David, I trust you are well. Well, actually, I've been uh, had, a, had a bit of a cold, but uh, generally speaking, uh, uh, it's been an interesting week as ever in, in renewable energy and a lot of focus this week, Giles, on the, on the gas side of things. Look, there has been a lot of focus on the gas side of things. Um, look, let's just leave the gas side thing aside for the moment and go into our interview for the day because I think um, our listeners will find enjoyable and there's plenty to discuss afterwards about gas and um, climate conferences coming up hosted by Joe Biden. Um, this week was interesting because we have set a new renewable share record of 56% um, reached on Sunday after an earlier record about 55.5% was set on Saturday and this week. We've also seen the greatest amount of wind output in the main grid, so things are changing. One technology we have not yet seen in Australia is offshore wind. And um, if you go back about five or ten years, people thought this was decades away, but it's actually shown great improvement in Europe in particular, um, being adopted also in Asia and the US. The costs have come down quite sharply, and now we're starting to see some movement, or we've been seeing some movement for a while, in Australia. One of the biggest projects being proposed in Australia is the 2000 megawatt star of the South Offshore Wind Project, Offshore Gippsland in Victoria. And we invited Erin Coldham, the Business Development Manager from Star of the South, to join us. Erin, thanks for joining Energy Insiders. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Look, it's a monumental project that you're proposing off the coast of Victoria. Not only is it the first offshore wind farm proposed for Australia, it's also going to be um, of quite some size, the biggest proposed in the Southern Hemisphere, 2,000 megawatts. How do you actually get going from sort of zero to massive in such a big leap? That's a great question, Giles, and uh, clearly you can tell we are an ambitious team, but uh, just to take your listeners back to the history, uh, this project was proposed some time ago, uh, back in early, well, earlier this decade, 2012, by some founders in Australia. But things didn't really take off till around 2017. And that year was significant because we obviously saw the closure of the Hazelwood Power Station. Uh, and it's really where we started to think around these alternative forms of electricity and perhaps the amount of renewable capacity that we might need into the future. Um, and that allowed us to attract some investment. So Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners came on uh, late that year as uh, providing the funding for this feasibility phase. And then we worked over a number of years on getting the right licenses to start our exploratory work. And uh, yeah, basically that's how, how we sort of attract that interest. I mean, the size of the project, naturally Australia is quite far away from the existing offshore wind market. So we did need to be really looking at uh, quite an ambitious and, and bold vision for how we could mm. get the industry kickstarted here. I guess the big question and the first question that comes to mind, though, is that because it is the first offshore wind project, how does offshore wind costs fit in with what's happening in the rest of the electricity grid at the moment? 
Yeah, I often say to people, there's, um, if you want a, a stable, steady, predictable career, don't work in energy because we can see there's a significant amount of change and reform going on. So uh, what I'll say about the cost of offshore wind, I obviously mentioned the local scene here and starting to see that opportunity of needing technologies like offshore wind. Uh, but what was happening at the same time globally was that the cost of offshore wind was coming down. Uh, one sort of particular statistic that sticks in my mind, I was reading a, a Bloomberg NEF article in July last year, uh, where I read that there was a 67% cost reduction in offshore wind since 2012. Now, one of the reasons is the advances in technology and the larger turbines that you can have, and we've seen extremely fast growth in that, uh, but also the speed of which uh, countries are embracing offshore wind. Uh, in that same article, there was um, a bumper year. I think it was the headline was colossal first six months of offshore wind for 2020, uh, where we saw investment decisions on 28 sea-based wind farms, um, totaling $35 billion. So we're looking at um, significant growth, fast advances in technology, and that's really where we see the opportunity for Australia. And you know, as a proud Australian and Victorian and somewhere that's um, become quite fond of the Gippsland region, we want to see us um, capitalise on that opportunity here at home as well. So Erin, I guess, uh, you know, it's, there's a long development time in this project and things may change a lot uh, before you actually get up to uh, producing stuff. But I just wondered if I could skip over all the environmental issues and just take, I'm sure there are, but just take them as a given and, and talk about it from an electricity perspective for a tiny bit. Um, first of all, I, I guess, could you tell me a little bit about the sort of capacity factor and also the timing of the wind? One of the things I've seen in some other jurisdictions for offshore wind is it tends to blow at a different time of day uh, to onshore wind in perhaps more around peak times. Uh, I wonder what you could, what you already know about the wind resource and stuff like that. Absolutely. Thank you for the question, David. I'm really glad that you asked that because that's where uh, certainly I and my colleagues spent a lot of time with our heads in that kind of data last year. So uh, to look at the actual daily profile and particularly where we're looking at Gippsland, we think that that's some of the strongest offshore wind um, and before I touch on the diversification, just looking at the daily profile, uh, there is strength that picks up towards the end of the day. So where we start to see other technologies perhaps dropping off, uh, such as solar, uh, there is great potential for offshore wind to come and fill some of that gap. Now, what we also did, because we, we've had, looking back at satellite data over a number of years, but also we've been doing our monitoring uh, out at sea in the specific site for uh, around 18 months now, we started to notice a correlation also between the hot days where the demand for electricity is high, um, particularly days over 35 degrees. So we commissioned a report with the Bureau of Meteorology where we looked back over 30 years worth of historical data and we found a meteorological link between those hot days over 35 degrees and the strength of the offshore winds due to the high pressure system that comes down. Uh, on some of those instances, the, the capacity factor was significant. So at times it was um, up to around 70%. On average, we expect a capacity factor of, you know, getting close to that 50% range, which is quite significant when you um, compare that to the broader renewable sector. And again, it's why a lot of countries have gone uh, over, you know, offshore with their renewable technology. But 
for us, we do think there's a strong role that offshore wind can play because of that cause and effect that we're seeing in the weather patterns. But also uh, when you look at the renewable build out across particularly the state of Victoria, where a significant amount of wind is being built in the west of the state, uh, that does become quite positively correlated with, um, you know, being sort of vulnerable to those same weather patterns. So certainly the opportunity to build not only in a different area of the state, but also offshore where those winds are stronger and operating at a, a close to 50% capacity factor. Uh, we do see that as quite important for going forward in filling the gap. Yeah, sure. And, and in fact, uh, you know, if it blows better offshore on hot weather, that would be different to onshore wind, which, as Paul McArdle at Global Rome often likes to point out, wind production tends to drop off very badly onshore on very hot days. That's, that's a definitely an issue. Um, and the next thing I wanted to ask about is water depth. Uh, and I hope uh, just briefly, what, what sort of, what do you expect the depth of water that you'll be building these turbines in? And maybe you could comment if you already have, if you have some idea of, you know, what uh, size turbines you, you plan to use. Sure. So touching on water depth, there's some great um, depths there where we're looking between 20 and 40 metres. So just to set the scene for your listeners, uh, at its closest point from the coast, we'd be roughly seven or eight kilometres out to sea. At that point, we're at around 20 metres. And then as we go further out, uh, the furthest point is around 25 kilometres from shore, we get into that 40 metre depth range. And that's perfect for the turbine foundations that we're looking at, which are fixed bottom, uh, where you can sort of drill or, drill or pile them into the, the sea floor. Um, naturally, overseas, we're seeing technologies advance to, to floating offshore wind turbines, which allows you to go out to deeper depths. But uh, certainly, we're looking at the, the traditional form of offshore wind turbine in our site. Uh, looking at the actual which turbine, we haven't come to a point where we've selected a turbine at this stage. Uh, and again, I think it's... Uh, a really interesting time to be in this industry. When I first started, I think the biggest turbines proposed that people were imagining were around the 10 to 12 megawatt range for offshore. Uh, since that time, just late last year, I think it was, we've seen a 15 megawatt uh, turbine announced. So uh, certainly the, the technology is growing very quickly and we're at this stage looking at an envelope. So we're, we're looking at a range and we have submitted environmental referrals uh, you know, I believe looking somewhere in the range of as small as 5.6 up to the latest technology that's out there. So we've still got a long way to go on this journey and uh, we'll, you know, look forward to keeping people informed as we go along. Uh, but at this stage, we're just still focusing on the actual wind profile that we've got out there, which we're measuring, as well as following what's happening in that global supply chain. I'm just wondering, um, the last piece of news that uh, came out of Star of the South was about your transmission line options. And I was fascinated to see that you're actually proposing a underground um, transmission line, at least for sort of part of the link. I guess it is from the heart of the Latrobe Valley where we've seen all the traditional coal-fired power stations out to the um, nearest coastal point to your offshore wind farm. Can you... Um, explain a bit why you're looking underground, because that would seem to be a more costly exercise than um, than above ground. Certainly, it's another question we get asked often. And uh, perhaps if I can put it in this way, I think uh, in understanding the Gippsland community and some of the challenges and risks associated with uh, the energy transition, 
we do see that in some ways you can't afford not to, um, even though it might be a more costly exercise in terms of the time that it would take you to develop your project, uh, you know, due to potential legal challenge or opposition from the local community. Uh, you know, this is an area where if those people can stretch their memories back. We had the BassLink cable and there was quite a lot of, uh, you know, difficult times in that community and for that project to get up uh, through that planning process. And this is, you know, going back nearly 20 years ago, the first seven kilometres was uh, forced to go underground due to visual impact and concerns from overhead uh, transmission lines. We also um, have other precedents in the cable from the Wonthaggy desalination plant up to the Latrobe Valley. Uh, similarly, a decision was made to put that underground due to the, the risks of going overhead. Uh, we've also seen, uh, since seen the Marinus project come out for their Gippsland component to say that that would be underground. So we do see that um, if we were not making that commitment, and certainly, you know, that's the, the loudest and clearest message we've had from our local communities and, and the landholders there in Gippsland, uh, it was an important for us to hear that feedback and, and respond to it in a way that allows us to continue the development of our project. And can I just ask about uh, financing? I mean, uh, you know, uh, two gigawatts, which I'm sure you won't build all at once, is, you know, like, I don't know, $4 billion or something, and maybe it's $5 billion offshore. Uh, it's a lot of money. I, it doesn't seem to me like your consortium has a... Has a not obviously a lot of lot of money to, to talk about at the moment. Might you get the project going and then sell it as a development or something? What's the thinking? Yeah, perhaps just to talk about um, our current financing and the backing. We're very uh, fortunate to have our um, feasibility phase and development phase fully funded by Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners, so quite a large renewable energy developer. Um, they are soon to close, I think, what's going to be the world's largest, uh, you know, fund of about 7 billion euros. So, uh, they're certainly a very uh, you know, credible developer that is funding this phase of the project and these um, important studies. In terms of the longer term, um, naturally it's, it's too early at this point to talk about how uh, that might work going forward in terms of the offtakes. But again, going back to the big picture situation, this is a, uh, you know, a wild transition that we're on here from the existing forms of energy um, and noting what we do need going forward, we do see there will be opportunity in the market to um, to go forward. You, meant, you mentioned some of the other projects um, um, that, um, particularly the Marinus Link, and that you know, that's the sort of the you know the Tasmania so-called Battery of the Nation project. Are you sort of in competition with any of these things? I mean, is it sort of does does your project is it conditional, or I mean, do, do the metrics? still stack up if um, some of these other sort of mega projects go ahead? Yeah, it's another question that comes up often um, you know, on a couple of fronts. One, because geographically we're, we're closely located. Um, and so we do talk to the people, uh, the Marinus project quite regularly and keep in touch with each other's plans, follow those developments. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because we both have a similar response to the question, which is, just looking at the scale of the transition that's required, and I was reflecting to David earlier, um, listening to your guest last week, where 
one of the themes is not just around what we need to decarbonise our electricity sector, but more broadly other sectors such as transport or, uh, you know, hydrogen production or whatever it might be. We do see that there's room for a number of mega projects and, you know, again, not just our offshore wind project, but perhaps multiple offshore wind projects. You know, it might come down to a matter of timing of when these projects come in, but ultimately if we're working towards a goal of net zero, zero emissions by 2050, uh, which is a legislative target in the state of Victoria, we do anticipate uh, there is room for multiple projects. And do you have green hydrogen in mind too when you're sort of thinking about the potential market for um, wind energy? Yeah, it's not part of our um, you know, base case, as you could say. We're not currently attaching it to our project. And I think um, you know, one reason is we've probably got enough to chew on with trying to get an offshore wind industry up and going. Um, but certainly we're very interested in the conversation around hydrogen. So we are part of the Gippsland Hydrogen Cluster Task Force um, to understand what developments are being proposed, uh, where there might be opportunities for collaboration. And certainly I've been really interested to see the uh, collaboration between hydrogen and offshore wind in the North Sea in particular, where there's a number of very ambitious projects from some of the, the large oil and gas players, uh, as well as, you know, things like energy islands that have been announced from the Danish government, uh, where they're looking at, you know, $28 billion artificial island, which is essentially combining those technologies, uh, offshore wind, hydrogen, battery storage. So I think this whole notion of power to X is something that's a really exciting thing to watch. And like I say, while it's not part of our uh, initial proposal, we're certainly always open to having conversations about those other technologies and how they might complement uh, the work that we're doing in offshore wind. And Erin, could you talk a, a little bit about the proposed timing of the project, like uh, when you expect to be, for instance, in which year to make a uh, an investment decision and then you know, how, how long it would take after that, uh, bearing in mind that, you know, a project like Stockyard Hill in Victoria, you know, is running years behind schedule. Uh, I, I, I don't mean to put the mockers on something. And my experience actually with a lot of different infrastructure in Victoria is it sometimes takes a, a lot longer than people think, particularly once you, you go offshore. Absolutely. I've been in the infrastructure game for a while and um, certainly even the most straightforward of projects can take a, a very long time. And what we're proposing here is a first for Australia where we do need to work on new regulations. How do we handle some of the assessments and the, the rules of operation for a project like this? Uh, so look, if everything went well, and I think what's important to point to here is um, you know, a recent announcement uh, around your lawns closure. I have to say my phone was ringing that day from people in Gippsland saying, when can your project be ready? Can it be operating by 2028? Uh, you know, the short answer is yes, it can. So if everything went well, if we had our, our project approvals and, uh, you know, commercially were able to make that decision uh, over the coming years, then we could see the project fully operational uh, in the year of 2028. But naturally with the amount of change going on in the market and of course the, uh, you know, the uncertainty around some of the regulations. We do need to uh, manage expectations around how long that could take. But what I would say as well is we're making solid progress. I think particularly uh, some of the environmental assessment work we're doing is quite important and is helping to pave the way for some of these other projects. And if I can touch on that point for a minute, uh, you know, we've seen since our project was announced, the latest check I did, and I think there was a an article in Renew Economy on, on the latest ones just last week, uh, we've got up to around 10 or 11 offshore wind projects that are publicly being talked about or proposed around Australia. And we do see that 
as we progress some of this work and particularly the important regulations with the federal government, it is helping attract interest of other players and, and will hopefully make that process easier for future projects going forward. And I might just ask, uh, in terms of the environmental studies, is there any issue that's you know likely to be uh, a significant issue, at least as far as you can see at the moment? Yeah, we certainly haven't seen any showstoppers coming out of our research and we're taking quite a comprehensive approach. So we are working with a number of research partners, uh, both international experts, plus a lot of institutions locally, uh, including the CSIRO, um, a number of universities, Monash, Deakin, uh, Curtin, uh, particularly on our marine mammal program, our migratory birds. Uh, you know, So we've been doing studies for around 18 months now on some of these environmental aspects and so far no showstoppers, but naturally we'll need to collect a solid baseline of data um, over a number of years to be able to run those assessments and present that information comprehensively to the authorities uh, and have that assessed to ensure that some of those impacts that could be uh, anticipated um, mitigated and also dealt with appropriately. You mentioned about the sort of the timing of some of the regulatory approvals and the processes and things like that. Have you been happy with the response of, say, governments and regulators to the um, you know, to this rather sort of unique and sort of first of its kind project in Australia? Yeah, I think we we need to obviously be realistic with ourselves and um, you know appreciate it, that it will take time. These these things can't be done overnight. There are other users of the sea that need to be considered. Uh, as well as the local environment. So I think 2020 was a really important year for offshore wind in Australia. We saw it take a big step forward with uh, commitments from both the state and federal governments in their budget. So um, often people don't, don't see this level of detail, but uh, the federal government did make a budget commitment to uh, finalise the important reforms for the offshore clean energy sector. So there is a bill that will be introduced to parliament at some point in time um, naturally not working for the government. I can't speak to the exact timelines, but we've been having some really productive discussions with that team and we're pleased to see that resourced uh, and we'll you know, look forward to seeing the reforms come in. And equally at a state level, um, we did see some acknowledgement of offshore wind and uh, the opportunity for some planning uh, that might be done at a state level as well as uh, you know, an initial uh, scheme, en Energy Innovation Fund, I believe it's uh, called, which you know may support technologies such as offshore mm. wind and hydrogen, among others. I just want to come back to sort of the price, um, which we kind of mentioned at the start. I mean, you obviously look at the forward prices for, for the electricity market, and I know you sort of said that um, it's pretty hard trying to forecast where electricity prices are going to go. But um, Yes, I'm just still wondering if offshore wind can actually sort of get in below what people expect the market price to be, the average market price. And is this going to be a technology which is going to need some sort of subsidy or sort of government support because it will be the first of its kind in this country? And I guess we've seen up till now always um, first of a kind technologies has kind of required some sort of government support either here or offshore. Yeah, I certainly think it is obviously one of the challenges and, and you've touched on it um, in terms of predicting where the price is going to be at a certain point in time. I think if, again, if I look at the big picture, a lot of this depends on the pace of the energy transition, uh, you know, decisions made around existing generation that might exit the market. Uh, you know, again, something that comes to mind is is the age of our coal-fired power stations. And we've obviously got some certainty around your lawn now and its exit. Uh, but looking at some of the remaining stations, uh, you know, the average age that they close is around 40 years. Half of the remaining power stations are more than 35 years old. So 
we do need major generation to replace what's there. And so while it is difficult to predict, we do think that opportunity exists. Um, to your comment around government support, um, naturally, I think we've seen that, uh, you know, acknowledgement through the grant funding that's available for offshore wind, um, potentially at a state level, uh, which, you know, we'll take a look at. But of course, we um, will follow with interest what other developments come out of government planning, um, particularly the offshore wind sector work that's being looked at and as other projects come online. So it's probably too early to say, but fair to say um, how the rest of the industry has developed. That is um, something that's a big consideration. Yeah, and of course, it's not just about price, it's about cost. I mean, uh, in contrast to Europe, onshore wind uh, is actually has reasonably good capacity factors, you know, not 40% is not an unreasonable expectation, even if it's not always achieved. Uh, and and so 50% offshore, you've got to, uh, and the cost onshore might be down under $50 now. Uh, so there's still a gap there to be made up, which you have to make up, I suppose, on the, on the revenue side of things by needing less firming from a system point of view, uh, and perhaps the portfolio benefits. Uh, so there's, uh, it's, it's, it's not, completely obvious uh, uh, but we're running out of time so you know I just don't know that's right I think and to your point it's really looking at the, the system cost it's um you know what what other uh you know projects or, or over investment might be avoided by capitalizing on the diversification uh factor of offshore wind so uh, that's something that I think will be an important conversation you know around the whole energy industry as we go through this uh you know reform work that's being done uh, on the national electricity market going forward. Erin, um, just one final question um, before we go, and it's not going to have anything to do with wind farm at all, but I couldn't help noticing you and David just uh, discussing your um, recent um, purchase of an electric vehicle. Um, what have you bought and why, and how are you finding it? Oh, I am, I, you, you've gotten me started on a topic which I'm very passionate about. So um, I'm the recent owner of a Tesla Model 3 and I am absolutely loving it. So I, I vary into my statistics around EVs and, and how that's tracking at the moment. I note that Australia is um, sadly not, not quite up there with some of the, um, the European figures and what we're seeing out of other markets. But I think through my, my word of mouth advertising of my Tesla, I'm hoping to improve that to at least above 1%. <laughs> I'm convincing a lot of family and friends that this is the way to go. And you know, I have to be quite honest, around five years ago, I never would have thought of myself driving an electric vehicle. It just wasn't on my mind. Um, but it, thinking through last year, I just thought, nope, let's take the plunge and um, see what it's like. And I, I'm absolutely loving it. I highly recommend it. What do you like most about it? Um, well, I mean, the Tesla's a little bit in a class of its own in terms of the technology and, um, you know, the features being able to control aspects from your phone. It might sound a bit scary to some, but I absolutely love on a hot day that I can um, be in my house and ask my car to be at 18 degrees when I step into it. Um, but, you know, I, I do feel, you know, it's I'm a mother of a son and, and he said to me, we were driving along and he said to me, mum, look at those other cars. They've got... Um, you know, fumes coming out of their exhausts. And he said, there's nothing coming out of ours. And, you know, it, it, it does make you feel quite proud to um, set that example for the future generation and that it is accessible. And, um, you know, it, it's, it requires more effort. I will say it's not all rosy. I did get caught out when a uh, charging station was out of order. So I had to do a 60 kilometre round trip to get a recharge for my regional um, Victoria driving the next day. But, um, you know, this is how it's going to be. And, and I'm really glad to be part of that um, transition. 
I think we, we have run out of time, uh, and I don't want to start Giles talking about his Tesla, <laughs> otherwise we'll never stop. I, and I also want to say that I think Tesla owners are very overrepresented in our guest list uh, here, at the, <laughs> uh, and, and that's a good thing too. Uh, they range from uh, Rick Francis at Spark uh, to Matt Keane drives one at the New South Wales government, uh, plus, plus you, Erin. Uh, but uh, that's, that's terrific. I've really enjoyed hearing about the Star of the South. That's a big project, and uh, I think we'll be talking about it again as we, as we go forward. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Erin. And I'm very sorry we can't spend another 20 minutes talking about a teaser, but maybe we will one day. Next time. All the best. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Erin Coldham from the Star of the South Project. David, um, offshore wind. Look, um, in Australia, as she says, even if everything gets lined up, it's going to be five or six years away and really not a lot of details about sort of cost or price or how it fits into the grid. But interesting to hear that this is not the only project, uh, offshore wind project being discussed. There's about, apparently about 10 or 11 of them. So people are sort of going out and sort of thinking sometime in the future, this is going to be a technology which we'll be seeing more of. Yeah, certainly. And there's no doubt Australia's got a good offshore wind resource, uh, but there's also no doubt that uh, onshore wind is extremely competitive in Australia, you know, much better wind resource in Australia, generally speaking, than, say, Europe. Um, and even in uh, as good as mostly the best parts of the United States. So offshore wind kind of has to, has to struggle uh, a little bit. If its costs are higher, it has to be, get a revenue benefit. Uh, which can be because of the portfolio impact, that is the wind blows at different times to the rest of the wind, um, um, and particularly it might blow, it might be better correlated with demand, which would be wonderful, uh, and equally there has to be environmental benefits in the sense that the wind turbine in, in, in um, Bass Strait is less visible and you, know, you don't have transmission things going across the ground, so uh, people who care about those sort of things will be less upset and you've got to row out yeah. the boat to look at the thing offshore and decide whether it's <laughs> killing a fish or not. Well, look, I'm sure it's going to be visible from the shore, actually, seven kilometres out, look, and they're going to be massive turbines. Um, it's interesting, though, the point that she makes about it blowing mainly at night and also blowing when you're, you've got those big sort of hot weather systems, um, those big high-pressure high systems sitting um, across the continent and in fact it's not actually that far away so even though they're thinking about putting the line underground it's not as though it, a huge new transmission line has got to go hundreds of kilometres um, out to somewhere in the far west of New South Wales or, or Victoria. Giles, uh, those who, who follow what I write, the very few of people, uh, will know that I'm a big fan of off the potential for offshore wind in Japan, in particular, where the water is deeper and it will have to be floating offshore wind, and also potentially uh, for India. Uh, but for Japan, it offers a prospect of being energy independent in a way that no other renewable, no other technology except perhaps nuclear has ever offered them before. Uh, so I, I think offshore wind uh, has tremendous implications and as discussed that it's also a key competing technology to the uh, export hydrogen uh, industry in Australia that, that we're also keen on, which brings us back to this uh, overall policy uh, thing and the gas-led recovery yes. and, and uh, you know, a little bit of leadership, uh, uh, carefully considered leadership uh, from some, some, some smart people at the federal government level, uh, which you know, we all live and hope for to happen one of these decades. 
Well, maybe not. Um, maybe one of those decades, I suppose. That's a fairly long time frame. It's been an interesting week. We've had the Four Corners report, um, which kind of looked at the sort of the links and the driving force behind the gas um, push in Australia, although it was not entirely clear where this is coming from, um, seeing that most of the evidence, apart from the gas industry itself, seems to sort of um, dismiss the economics of, of such a push. Um, we saw the Grattan report on Sunday and Monday also sort of arguing that 90% renewables would be sort of cheaper than what we have now but the last 10% will be hard which I don't think actually tells us anything new and, and it's not new I mean this that no. reports I mean most of the reports I've seen lately uh, have all just restating by arguably more illustrious names stuff that other people have written dozens of times before like the CSIRO said exactly the same thing three or four years ago ITK ourselves po pointed out that the You'd need some longer duration storage uh, or some longer duration energy source for the last the last ten percent's hard. We know that, and I guess the point of the Gretton report was that until we know better, um, they're sort of arguing for four gigawatts of new gas capacity possibly coming into the grid. But we saw at the same time the Clean Energy Council releasing reports saying that you know how batteries are um, competing ever more um, with gas storage, particularly in the shorter duration. Um, Look, bat batteries have a much bigger future than gas. Uh, look, I think about gas. There are three points, at least, that people need, uh, and three different arguments get uh, get con not confused, but all sort of join into the one argument. And I'll just go through them. Gas for power generation is might be useful for the last five or ten percent of the energy that's required at the moment until there's a cheaper alternative, like, for instance, hydrogen, uh, which is not certainly not cheaper at the moment. But we're not at 90%. We're at 20%, more or less, overall, notwithstanding the grid got to 50%. So we've got a long way to go before we have to worry about that. Uh, the second thing is that, in fact, gas is the third largest source of global carbon emissions, and it's growing faster than, than the other uh, bits and pieces, uh, oil and coal. And so that's, that's, you know, it's got a limited future that any smart person would factor in. The third thing is that we need gas for other than power generation at the moment and, until other sources are developed, primarily for fertilisers and plastics are the two obvious uh, sources. And, and we have to develop alternatives for them, but we don't need to, other than the fertiliser industry, it's not that big a deal in Australia. And the fourth thing is, which has been abundantly clear to everyone, and, and even Angus Taylor, you know, is that gas is never going to be that cheap in Australia ever again. I don't think you find anyone in the gas industry that really thinks natural gas is going to be cheap. The cost of getting it out of ground is 5 or $6 a gigajoule. And so, um, you know, it's 30% of the cost of uh, fertilisers from memory. Uh, and... and um, and it gives you electricity over $100 a megawatt hour. The idea that you can use gas to reduce electricity prices is fanciful. Uh, something. It is fanciful. It is absolutely fanciful. David, another major offence that's going to be happening next week is this big climate conference being hosted by Joe Biden. The expectation is that the US is going to announce, in fact, a scaling up of its interim emissions targets um, to possibly up to 50% by 2030. This comes as we see numerous reports, um, both internationally and from Australia, just sort of underlying the, the challenge that even to get to two degree target, we've actually got to move really, really quickly. And in some cases, we need to have zero net zero emissions on the grid by 2030 even, and, 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 and really sort of quite sharp emissions reductions um, over the next decade, because basically we've been sitting on our hands and doing practically nothing over the last five or six years. 
What do you think or hope or expect to happen, David, and what do you think, if any, impact will this have on the Australian government? Well, it won't have any direct impact to start with. Uh, coal, Australia's, Australia is the world's third largest exporter of uh, energy, and it's all thermal energy, coal and gas. We export a gross amount of $90 billion a year, more or less, depending on what the prices are. And that all goes to Asia, essentially. And so what the USA does doesn't directly affect Australia in that sense. The USA's uh, target is not going to result in a global carbon price. They're going to try and do it with other uh, mechanisms, but it's certainly going to include uh, lots of support one way or another for electric vehicles uh, and and, uh, um, investment tax credits for renewable energy. So there will continue to be a large amount of capital flowing into that industry. One of the big questions about this summit next week is whether China will actually join and what China will actually do. And what what China commits to will affect Australia in an absolutely major way, in the same way that what Vietnam and what uh, uh, India do also will affect Australia in a major way. And we're seeing basically in all those countries except China, we're seeing actually reasonably significant evidence already of a reduction in the growth in coal at the very least. Um, And the other thing about it is when it comes to uh, transport policy is that Australia imports all its vehicles, as you know, but energy is the biggest source of, uh, sorry, transport is the biggest source of energy consumption in Australia, uh, the biggest end sector. And we have no policies regarding decarbonising transport, zero, zero policy. uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And in fact, it was quite extraordinary just to see the uh, Tesla chair, Robin Denham, sort of um, let fly a little bit. Um, she was speaking to the New Zealand Parliament, which is actually introducing a um, a vehicle emission standard or a fuel standard there, um, um, sort of long awaited. And uh, New Zealand with Australia is one of the only two countries um, or, or two of the only countries in the world that actually don't have emission standards. It basically um, costs, it means that, um, well, not only do we import all our vehicles, we basically import our fuel. We import a really crappy fuel, which is not suitable for most engines. So we actually import the worst, the, the dumping ground um, of pretty crap car technology. That adds to about $600 extra a year on fuel costs because the engines are so inefficient. And we have about sort of, um, I can't remember, but some extraordinary multiple of sulfur emissions from those engines, which end up sort of killing a couple of thousand people a year as well from their health impact. So it's just quite an extraordinary state of affairs and one which the federal government has refused to do anything about. Yeah, that's right. And if you look at the minister responsible for transport, Michael McCormack, uh, the the idea that he would actually do something, uh, you know, is... uh, um, (laughs) Far-fetched. It is. It's far-fetched, right? It just isn't going to happen. But the point about it is that the world is moving in that direction, so Australia is going to fall further behind at the moment. And that's where USA policy, if they go big on EVs, uh, then, uh, you know, the only reason Australia can afford to lag, in all honesty, is because uh, Japan has still got a hydrogen policy and Toyota, uh, which is, uh, you know, the number one vehicle seller in in the world at the moment and uh, probably the uh, number one in Australia, uh, really has, has not embraced electric vehicles at all. But if every other country... Uh, as Logan said uh, from Blue BNEF, is is doing uh, electric vehicles in a big way, then uh, Toyota won't be able to ignore it at all, and then it'll come to Australia whether we want it or not. But, you know, the problems that that have been identified for Australia, the passenger vehicles uh, around uh, 
range anxiety and refueling and model choice. I mean, they're easy things to solve for the federal government. It would cost it's a trivial amount of money for the federal government to get a decent refueling network set up. And, and as I keep saying, it's well within the powers of the state governments to do something about that. The reason why the federal governments have to get involved is because of the fuel excise levy and the various taxes that state governments raise and the federal government raises from, from, from petrol and oil, and there needs to be an alternative uh, to those, I suppose. Although, you know, we run such huge deficits at the moment, uh, in, 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 when you can spend, uh, you know, upwards of $50 billion on 12 submarines, what, what's, what's a billion or two on... On, uh, <laughs> on fuel excise, in, in yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No, that's quite right. Well, David, look, I think um, we've probably kept um, uh, enough time of the uh, use up enough time of our listeners. We do thank them very much for uh, listening, joining us once again uh, this week. We thank our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon, for their continued and ongoing support. And we'll be back again next week, David, with another episode of Energy Insiders. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.